0: Well, hello and welcome, welcome back. In fact, welcome back. Um, last week, just just by way of a recap, uh, I posted, I suppose, with some degree of trepidation um, or uncertainty, at any rate, uh, a, a call for questions for a Q and A um, in in the style of the first draft audio posts I've been doing for a year or so. Um, and we did it using this new video function. I think you can you can hear this on the on the first draft audio stream, which goes uh, via podcast apps. It's not a podcast, actually. I have to tell you that. Um, but now we've got this video aspect as well. Uh, and it, I, I wasn't sure if people would like it, if they would would feel that video on Substack was really the thing that they were here for. But it does seem to have been remarkably popular. So. In a moment, I'm going to answer the second batch of questions that I didn't get around to last week, along with all the questions. I think most of the questions, certainly, that were posted under the the first batch of answers. Um, I printed them out like a, like an old guy who who can only read on paper, which I suppose is what I am. Um, so I'm going to do that. And as I've put in in as I've written in the post underneath this, I think the. The fact that everybody has enjoyed or a substantial number of people have enjoyed this uh, this video format tells me that it's a good idea to do it next year. So as of 2024, as of January 2024, racing towards us. I'm going to make this a monthly feature on history, etc. Uh, I'll put a call out for your questions, maybe about a week's notice, and then I'll answer them in this video format. Um, I will make the, the way it'll work the way it's, it's just worked, which is I'll put the call out. You ask the questions in, in the comments. Um, that'll be a, a privilege of paid subscribers to history, etc. I think that's uh, I think that's fair to limit it to people who are who are have, uh, who are subscribers. But I'll send the video out to everybody, so you can all enjoy this sort of um, freewheeling journey through history and whatever else we get round to. Uh, okay, so that's that's that. Anything else I need to tell you? Oh yes, uh, in keeping with last week's episode, uh, since there will be some listeners. Uh, let's let's get a bit of the old school inclusive language. I am sitting in my office, uh, full of books, double stacked books. Um, around me are more books, 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 books everywhere. Uh, I am wearing um, a silver chain, which has come outside my jumper in a sort of baller fashion. I've just tucked it back in. I'm wearing a red jumper, it's it's a festive sweater, but it's it's uh, it's it says slash and it has Slash the guitarist's uh, logos everywhere. There have been some questions about the jumper I was wearing last time, where I got it from, I'll get round to that. Uh, this jumper I bought last year from Slash's own merchandise website, uh, and it's it's one of my favourites. It's, it's a synthetic fibered material, uh, so it does get quite warm, but it's chilly at the moment, so that's no bad thing. Right, let's get on with the questions. I, I'm, I'm picking up where we left off last week with Jessica Corsi, who says, "'Not too many people know about the anarchy, "'at least in the US. "'It plays out like a royal medieval soap opera. Um, "'I recently heard Stephen tried to bribe the church "'to support his claim to the throne.'" So this is the anarchy, for anyone who's, uh, who, as Jessica suggests, is ignorant of it, um, was the civil war, the 19-year civil war, uh, fought between King Stephen and the Empress Matilda, who's the the only legitimate daughter of Henry I, the younger son of William the Conqueror. Um, And it was that war which eventually produced the Plantagenet monarchy because Matilda's claim was transmitted through her son, Henry Fitz-Empress, who became Henry II. Henry uh, did a deal with Stephen in 1153 to succeed him as king. It ended the war in 1154 when Stephen died Henry became king. Uh, Jessica says, uh, are there any great books about the anarchy? Well, there's, I mean, Jim Bradbury, I think, has probably written uh, the, the solid textbook, I would say. Has um, Kath Hanley done the anarchy? I think she's done Matilda. She's very good. Uh, you'd have to check check out whether she's actually done the anarchy. And, and there's Charles Spencer's book, um, The White Ship, And so the white ship, which goes down um, uh, and takes out William the Etheling, Henry the First, only legitimate son. Henry the First had a ton of children, but only two of them were legitimate. William the Etheling, his son, Matilda, his daughter. So William the Etheling dies aboard the white ship, and that's what, what starts the anarchy so you could you could always look at Charles Spencer's white ship and that's very well written very accessible it's one of my um favorite popular medieval history books so uh Jessica also asked if I've seen season two preview for House of the Dragon I have not I haven't even watched season one of House of the Dragon I'm afraid I'm very very behind on all of that um is it any good I I mean I sort of uh, I feel like maybe we're spoiled in the realm of television now that I'm like, eh, is, is House of the Dragon any good? Because we've had we've had Thrones, I'm sure, in another era that would have been must-watch television, but I haven't watched it yet. But then I haven't watched anything that's not sport for ages um, because I've been writing my little books. Thank you, Jessica, as always, for your contributions. Uh, keep them coming. You always ask fantastic questions. Here's Valerie. Dan, I, she says, hi Dan, actually, she's not as uh, as, as direct as I've made her out to sound. <clears throat> hi Dan, I regularly read about nobles building castles that are just as quickly being pulled down on the king's orders, brackets, mainly during revolts and civil wars. What was the quality of these castles that could be built and destroyed so easily? Clearly, it's not Dover castle quality. Great question, and I suppose... Um, what, what lies underneath this question is what qualifies as a castle when we see Castrum or whatever the the, uh, the, the reference might be in a document from the time. What is it referring to? I mean, our, our, our vision, our, our <clears throat> in our imagination, the medieval castle is, as you rightly say, Valerie, something like Dover Castle or one of the great Welsh castles of the Dead with the First built, particularly around Snowdonia, I think Carnarvon here, Conway, Harlech, Bomaris and all the rest. Um, we can't imagine, surely, can we, nobles just slinging those things up um, with the ease of a flat pack uh, garden shed? Um, they took many years uh, to build, even with a royal budget uh, such as Edward I, or in Henry II's case, Henry II was deploying to make Dover Castle. The castles that we we see that have survived today in stone uh, typically are the product not only of <coughs> excuse me, not only of one building process. But of, of multiple building processes over the years, <coughs> excuse me, in which uh, materials have been, um, uh, in which they've been, you know, first started as a, a wooden fortification, then it's been rebuilt in stone, then it's been added to, then it's had more fortifications, modifications, often it's been turned into a palace. Anyone, you know, think back to Secrets of Great British Castles, that was really the story of every castle. I, th- I think, that we visited is it starts small and expands and expands and expands. And then, you know, it's it's the opposite of peeling the onion. You're putting layer upon layer upon layer upon layer on these castles. Um, so only very very infrequently do we see castles on that stage being slung up quickly. The one that springs to mind immediately, I suppose, is Chateau Pelerin, um, pilgrim's castle at leet in the Holy Land, the Templar fortress, which I read about in the Templars, um, which is built at pace in stone with massive amounts of of pilgrim labour on the coast of what's what's now Israel, Um, but that's that's unusual. So I think what we're talking about when we see nobles throwing up castles would probably typically be timber and earthwork fortifications, um, not gigantic uh, concentric uh, stone castles. Um, Susie and others as well uh, says, I want to know something about your tattoos. Can you share maybe one a month or something? Well, I mean, there's just really not masses to share. It's more like I consider it like graffiti rather than uh, than fi- than carefully thought out fine art. Um, the one I've got in progress at the moment, I'll tell you, but I won't show you because it would require me to take off my slash merch. Um, Festive Jumper is um, having my entire back done with a version of uh, Albrecht Dürer's Apocalypse woodcuts um, and that's been ongoing for quite a while uh, because Manuela who's my tattoo artist is based in Cape Town she only comes to London once, twice, three times a year and so uh, we can only do it now and again working it now and again, but it has hours of, of, of work. I'm enjoying having it done. Um, I did see a sort of a, a Dura style uh, skeleton dancing on what looked like uh, Louis the Ninth's head. Someone was getting tattooed on their neck uh, on Instagram yesterday. Uh, uh, but I don't know if I'm, I don't think I should be going onto the neck. Or maybe I should. Cut to about six months later, I've got a massive tattoo of a skeleton on my neck. Uh, where's your sweatshirt from, says Alinda Hope? Well, uh, it's from Slack. This one's from Slash's website, the one I think you saw last week which had, as I recall, uh, Santas and snowflakes on it, was from EMP, EMP, I don't know what it stands for, EMP.co.uk, they sell all sorts of, um, of, uh, of merchandise, uh, not memorabilia, that which what I was about to say, it's merch. Uh, I, I usually go shopping there once uh, a year, and typically they, they they license to sell a lot of rock bands. Um, well, I've got a couple, I'll show you. Um, They sell rock bands sweaters. So this is this year's Guns and Roses sweater. Guns typically do one every year. That one is blue this year. And here is one I bought last year, which is a sort of Iron Maiden. It's got uh, Eddie Iron Maiden's famous sort of zombie type monster. And then on the back, it's uh, it's got Satan holding a trident. It's got some flames. It's got the number six six six. That's probably a reference, I imagine, to Maiden song six six six, the number of the beast. I like, you know, rock plus Christmas. It's it's a nice combination. Anyway, EMP. I think it's EMP. Shall I just check that? E-M-P. Yep, EMP.co.uk is where I do my shopping. Thank you for the question. Oh, hold on. Who's asking this one? Suzanne. Suzanne asks, Dan. Hi, Dan. In your podcast, do you say the actions or decisions that were made over 500 years ago Uh, We're still living with the consequences of them. Are the consequences only noticeable in the UK, maybe France as well, or in the whole of Europe? Well, um, uh, so the podcast you're referring to, if anyone wants to listen to the actual podcast, that is a podcast that I actually do uh, with Sony Music, that is called This Is History. You can go to any podcast provider, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Apple Music, or whatever it is, Apple Podcasts. Um, you can go to thisishistorypod.com if you want to subscribe to that one you get all the bonus episodes that we're doing at the moment. I'll tell you more about that in a minute um yes that's that's a, that's that's a cell and one of the, it's a but it's a broader cell of history isn't it why do we study history um part of the reason not the only reason um, is to inform our understanding of uh, of the present and that can be done in lots of different ways. One of the ways it can be done is by helping us to understand. Uh, why we do things in in particular ways. Um, th- all of this is quite abstract. Let me give you a good popular example of where I've seen that written up quite well. This is a, a UK and, and France example. So the last and final and the latest and final volume of Jonathan Sumption's uh, History of the Hundred Years' War, which is called, it's not called Cursed Kings, that's volume four, it's called Triumph and Illusion came out earlier this year. I interviewed Sumption for Sunday Times. Some of you may have read that. I think I've posted on this Substack uh, part part of our interview as a transcript. Um, Sumption writes incredibly brilliantly in the final summing up chapter of that book, which sums up the whole five-volume series about um, the legacy of the Hundred Years' War today, and particularly in terms of the way the, the, the way it was financed and and... And the way that tax in the UK, well, in England in that case, now the UK was raised via Parliament to fight that war has had a profound legacy on the, our system of government today. Uh, and he, he makes the, the the case very persuasively for France, um, developing in a in a very different way. Um, but is that example solely limited to? Uh, England and France? I don't think so. I think that, uh, I mean, I'm not a, a historian of um, of Central Europe or, or or other parts of Europe, but I think you can see elements of um, what's what's a good example? Maybe Italy is a good example. Um, the, the sort of the regionalism of Italy, the dominance of Italian cities and, and the, the regional difference, the profound regional differences within Italy as well as the sort of super regional uh, differences between north and south the industrial north and the sort of more rural uh, south um, all kind of can be traced back at least to the middle ages and, and you know, Rome of course beyond that uh, the rise of Venice in the middle ages um, and Venetian dominance over uh, the Adriatic Venetian influencing places like Crete uh, and, and uh, southern Croatia Dalmatia Dubrovnik um, uh where I, you know the, these are exa- There are lots of good examples of the Middle Ages still informing the ways that uh, places look, sound, smell, taste operate today. Um, love the medieval. Yes, I was reading medieval proverbs. Uh, Patty loved the medieval proverbs. The book is somewhere. It's now it's now been sort of fossilized under um, another pile of books. It's around somewhere. I'll dig out some more medieval proverbs if if anyone really wants. Or maybe it's not. Maybe I took it back to the library. I was in the library last week. I don't think I took it back, but I'm damned if I can find it now. Um, Anyway, Patty's got a question. Which medieval queen, other than the rather obvious Eleanor of Aquitaine? Is that a slight slight shade on Eleanor of Aquitaine, calling it obvious? I don't think so. Who do you admire and why? Um, I mean, I think uh, Isabella of France is is the one who comes first to mind. That's the, the queen wife of Edward II. Uh, married as a child to Edward, uh, didn't have such a jolly time, given that Edward was rather more interested in Piers Gaveston, his his good buddy, very good buddy, um, than her, uh, but um, survived the turbulent reign of Edward II, did more than survive, um, led the uh, rebellion against Edward II uh, in concert with her lover Roger Mortimer. Deposed her husband, um, and then ruled with Roger for th- for about three years thereafter, thirteen twenty seven through thirteen thirty, um, before her son Edward III came to the throne. Isabella, she wolf for France, as she was known, is fantastic story. We did her story, well, we did Edward the Second and her story um, years ago in the TV show, which I think you can still get on YouTube or Acorn or one of those platforms. Um, no, it's not Acorn anymore. Someone else has got the rights to it now. Uh, Britain's bloodiest dynasty. We did Edward II, I think, didn't we? Um, and Isabella was a big part of that. Um, and I think we, I think we're going to get to that story in season five of the pod of the actual podcast, which I mentioned earlier. This is history. I'm writing season four at the moment. Season four is Henry the Third and Edward the First, a sort of uh, and Simon de Montfort. It's the, that new generation of. Um, of Plantagenets and we're going to start dropping that in at the end of January early February I think so that's coming up I'll, te- I'll tell you even more about that podcast in a minute because we've we've, we've currently launched we've got a bonus interview episodes that are going out at the moment for just for um subscribers to this is history plus that's a completely different subscription thing to what you're watching now by the way Anyway, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Uh, Patricia Goddard, uh, your friend of mine, she's listening to The History of the Anglo-Saxons by Mark Morris. Am I wasting my time? She says, no, I think you're probably listening to the best book out there on the Anglo-Saxons. I mean, a valiant effort. It took Mark, I believe, five years to write that. Uh, I mean, it was was tough going to to find a a narrative thread through the Anglo-Saxon period. Uh, And and Mark is an extremely good historian, a very nice guy. Um, Big fan. Big fan. Uh, no, you're not wasting your time in the slightest. Um, Deborah says she likes the, the video format, or likes the idea of the video format. I hope you're, you're enjoying the execution as well, Deborah. Um, Deborah is a teacher, and she's updating her class syllabus for next year. She says, I'm going to include topics related to medicine, hygiene, and sexuality in the Middle Ages. In addition to primary sources such as Hildegard von Bingen, I'm including recent publications such as The Fires of Lust by Catherine Harvey. Very good book. I reviewed it for the Sunday Times a couple of years ago. Um, Usos Amorosos de las Mujeres en la época medieval. Women's Amorous Uses in Medieval Times by Teresa Vignoles. And Javier Trait. Uh, I may have mispronounced the surname. I may have mispronounced many other things. Um, The Smell of the Middle Ages. Do you have any others you can recommend? I mean, the go-to in terms of original text anyway is the Trotula, Trotula of Salerno, I'm sure you've got extracts from that on there. Uh, I would, so just speaking from the work I'm doing at the moment, uh, which as I mentioned, uh, probably ad nauseam to some of you, uh, I'm working on a biography of Henry V Um, in fact I just delivered the first 65,000 words of the biography of Henry V yesterday Um, and we start with a surgeon, we start with with John Bradmore, um, personal, well uh, a very well-to-do London surgeon at the turn of the 14th into 15th century. Bradmore um, was on the books of Henry IV's court uh, and he treated the young Henry V, Prince Henry, uh, when Henry was shot in the face with an arrow at the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403. And Bradmore's notes from the operation survive, as do notes on his other operations. Uh, Michael Livingstone... Has written an article. I think it's called To the Depth of Six Inches. I think it's called that. It it may be a minor variation on those words. And it's, excuse me, Um, and it's all about Bradmore's surgery on Henry V. And it's a fascinating case study. Uh, There's other work on Bradmore out there. Uh, I think I've got it. I don't have it. Maybe I don't have it. No, I don't have it up on my screen at the moment. There is there is a PhD on on Bradmore that if you if you Google Bradmore's name should uh should come up. And uh, or it's maybe the master's thesis or a PhD thesis, which is all about uh, Bradmore and Philomena um medical texts. So that's very interesting. Anyway, Bradmore's a, a super interesting case study, and and the first place to start, I think, is probably Livingston. That's Livingston, L-I-V-I-N-G-S-T-O-N his article to the depth of six inches um yeah that's where i'd go fare thee well uh who writes amy substack says it's been two year two christmases with you dan either on substack or facebook lives and it adds to the excitement of the season well that's very sweet of you to say i love checking out your sweaters well you've seen this one probably last year because it's not a new sweater and hearing what you've been up to pink throbbing heart uh, that's the emoji I'm describing there. Uh, ass kissing aside, I just started amateur writing on Substack two weeks ago. Well, well, well done, you, and welcome. It's something I've been yearning to do for ages. You actually inspired me. Oh, well, now I'm now you're, you're embarrassing me uh, in a good way. I mostly focus on Henry the Seventh and how awesome and underrated he is. Okay, so you Henry the Seventh fans, go follow Amy's Substack. Can you tell us who you like to follow and read on this platform? Uh, and maybe what it's like being having been a user for a bit. It seems like more and more historian authors are jumping on. Um, it does seem like they're jumping on. I don't. I've got to confess. I, I I'm a, a producer rather than a consumer mostly. But the person who got me started reading Substack was um, my buddy and uh, one of the the great popular historians out there, in my opinion, Patrick Wyman. Um, and was, well, yeah, I'm sure lots of you listen to Pat Patrick's. Uh, podcast Tides of History. Uh, I first came across Patrick when he was writing on the sports website, website Deadspin. Um, he was doing history on Deadspin. And he was the only other person I'd ever come across who had the, 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 an equal measure of um, of love for sport and history, uh, which are, are two of my great passions. Um, and over the years, Patrick and I have spoken a lot. With you know, he's, he's kindly had me on his podcast. Um, he's written a fantastic uh, book of medieval history called The Verge. Uh, which I highly recommend. Uh, and so Patrick got me interested in Substack, and he was posting a lot. I think he's just started posting again, actually. Uh, he's fantastic. So he got me into this. I can talk really – I can definitely talk to the experience of of having used Substack for um, for a while. Uh, I started it I, – I used to use Facebook for almost everything. Um, and I started two – is it two full years ago or three full years ago? I can't remember now. I think it's two. Maybe three. Anyway. Um, and I started because I just wanted to do a, I think it's three now, um, a monthly newsletter that would just sort of roll up all my recommendations and stuff I'd been interested in writing about. And um, and that proved much more popular than I thought it was going to. Um, lots of subscribers uh, joined up. And I realised that people were, were willing to um, invest and engage in in a newsletter in a way I, I was somewhat skeptical that they, they would be and and also to um to be to to feel that they were part of a, a sort of community and that's a very overused um, term it's it's somewhat of a cliche uh, on the internet in, in in the world community 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 but I, I do feel that um it's not just about me, kind of gabbling at you. That I always read the comments below all the all the posts that I send out. Uh, I try and respond to uh, to people's requests. Um, it's it's I try and have an element of interactivity here. Um, so I yeah I've really enjoyed doing it. It gives it's a, it's a sort of scribble pad for me in a way that you know it's I, I get to write about things that I might not be able to write about uh, elsewhere. Um, I'm thinking in in terms of, um, you know, to get a commission for a newspaper. So this week, for example, uh, I wrote about um, 800 years since the first nativity scene uh, set up by St. Francis of Assisi in a cave, uh, and we have the source for it. And, I, I, you know, I wrote a kind of um, uh, 1,200-word essay, something like that, about the first nativity. You know, maybe 10 years ago I might have tried to get that uh, commissioned in a newspaper, and it may or may not have, have made it, and it may or may not have made it in the form I wanted it to be in. Um, whereas I can see something in the morning, uh, write it up in a couple of hours and um, and have it published, you know, within the space of of not very long at all on Substack, and then I can gauge response um, both in terms of comments and in terms of um the, the the metrics that Substack gives you at the back end to see what people are really interested in. I love the way that Substack's developed over the last few years to include video content, audio content. The back end, the sort of the engine, has got a lot slicker. I found the team very respo- uh, very supportive of me. You know, they they helped me d- design the uh, the um, uh, the whole look of this thing. They gave me some good pointers how to to build an audience and how to make them. You know, how to how to deepen how to enhance the experience of your audience on Substack. And now I would say it's my my go-to um social media. And now with this video functions here, that was the, the sort of you know in a way the last thing I was using Facebook for. I'm not going to close my Facebook site by any means, but um but I do feel that uh on Substack uh, this is the place where um I can do the work I really enjoy doing. So I'm having a great time and Amy I hope Amy's Substack goes well for you and I hope you you know you, you pick up a few Henry VII um, nerds along the way from this. Anyway, uh, Mac Bloom now, or Bloom, sorry if I'm, I've mispronounced your surname, Mac. Did you find writing Wolves of Winter, that's the, the new novel, to be, um, that was my new novel, to be any easier or more natural after having Essex dogs under your belt? Wolves of Winter somehow felt even more gripping than Essex dogs, well, thank you, uh, which is remarkable to me considering how much I loved the first instalment. Well, Mac, that's jolly kind of you to say so um Essex Dogs was was the first time I'd written fiction at uh, at length I'd done short stories but nothing comparable to Essex Dogs I found it uh, difficult in some ways um much more emotionally draining um than I had expected um or emotionally intense let's say I found that uh yeah and I I, I but I was I was super excited to, to learn and to be a beginner again um it was hard and there were you know as we're thinking back to when I started writing nonfiction, there were many times when I thought I literally, I just do not know what I'm doing and I don't really have anyone to ask I'm just going to figure this out I had a very very good editor on Essex Dogs called Laura Palmer who um who held my hand particularly through th- through uh, not a substantial rewrite but a, a a more significant rewrite than I would have done on a non-fiction book uh, during the editorial process. When I did Wolves of Winter, it was a slightly different writing process for Wolves because with Essex Dogs, it was really the product of maybe five years' slow germination or four years of thinking about it and one intense year of writing it. Um, I had to write Wolves of Winter after I came off the Essex Dogs UK book tour in September, I finished that twenty. 20- 22, I had to sit down and write it for publication in autumn 2023, so I had five months from a standing start to write, to, to signing off, uh, and, and that in itself, to go from blank page to finished product in five months, was super hardcore, uh, and it was over the winter, and the story of Wolves is very much more intense than the story of Essex Dogs, partly because of the place we've got the characters to at the end of Essex Dogs, and, and where we're going to take them In Wolves, it it was a more challenging writing process. Essex Dogs is a a sort of linear story. They land, they march, they fight, they march, they fight, they march, they fight, more or less. And whenever I got stuck in terms of story building, I could go to um, the the diary, if you like, of these seven and a bit weeks in in the field and say, well, where are they next? What happens next in this story? And use that to pull myself along through the writing process. Wolves of Winter takes place over eleven months and it's a siege, they go to Calais and they sit outside it. There's more to it than that, but that's that's the sort of that's the movement shape of the of the overarching historical plot. So there is a lot more kind of there's a whole new type of 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 story building that I needed to learn in fiction to write wolves and I had to do it incredibly quickly. I found the story of Wolves of Winter much more like claustrophobic and intense partly as I say because these characters have been broken down somewhat already in Essex Dogs uh, but just uh, the the winter siege just had a different flavour to the summer march and I wanted it to be that way. Um, I found that it, it was incredibly, it, that was draining, it took a huge bite out of me writing Wolves of Winter. I came to the end, and it was really, really felt like I was, like, <laughs> cliched sporting analogy that I'd run a marathon. Um, I, you know, I did had nothing left. I was completely and utterly and absolutely shattered uh, by the story, and by the effort of, of writing it so quickly. Um, I found that almost everybody prefers Wolves of Winter to Essex Dogs. Um, which is amazing. Um, I don't know if I've got the perspective yet. When I finish Henry V in about seven weeks' time, six weeks' time, um, I will go back and reread Essex Dogs and Wolves of Winter straight through because I'm going to start writing book three, which will conclude the trilogy, uh, and then I'll my, then I'll be in, in a better position to judge. I guess we'll see. Um, it's anyway. It's, it, it was. It's been a real what I wanted when I set out to do these two books, these two novels, having written 10 or 10 or more nonfiction books, was to have the sense of being a beginner again, was to put myself somewhat vulnerable as a writer. And, you know, it's like giving a rosebush a real hard prune. Uh, you, you want it to, to flourish thereafter. So uh, I feel like it's been a, a very improving and interesting thing for me to have done as a writer. Uh, and I'm I'm... I, I'm looking forward to, to writing book three. Um, Jerry Shea, do you have, well, following on, I suppose, do you have two separate approaches when writing, says Jerry Shea, or is it the same approach for non-fiction and fiction? It's, two, it's completely different. So I'm writing non-fiction at the moment. I have my plot board to my left, which is a, a wall covered in corkboard. Um, it's architected out. The story is blocked. Uh, I'm writing to a plan. Uh, I am surrounded by books, books, books everywhere, um, primary sources, secondary sources, uh, journals, calendars. Uh, my latest purchase is a four volume. These are two of the volumes, history of parliament of in the middle ages, uh, the House of Commons, it's it's a biographical dictionary of all the members of the House of Commons between 1386 and 1421 in four volumes. Um, a uh, bit of a, a splurge purchase but it, it's totally invaluable but that will get a lot of use writing a novel none of this is here the 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 plot board doesn't have an architecture for the story it just has like slogans notes pictures uh, it's more of a mood board uh, the desk is largely clear of any books uh it just has my laptop um and maybe about eight cups of uh, dead cups of coffee um I'm going to be lying on the sofa a lot more. It's a. The whole energy of writing has to be completely different uh, between fiction and non-fiction, Completely different. Um, uh, another question about Wolves of Winter from Michelle Mamela Pedra. Um, what was your inspiration to create Her Scent? Um, th- were there more women's swords for hire? Um, I, I think, I mean, Hirsant's character of a sort of female mercenary is, is deliberately atypical in the Middle Ages. Um, she was, part of her character was based on memories I had of um, actually a, a bodybuilder called Tracy, who I'd known, I knew 15 years ago, maybe, when I lived in London. And Tracy was Scottish Jamaican, not Dutch Flemish like Hercent. Um and she was super like she was tough and she was I only ever saw her wearing a sweatsuit Um, she was a pro bodybuilder Um, she had a sort of kind of a rash of stubble from the the, the supplements I guess that one one takes when you're a pro bodybuilder Uh, she was super nice actually unlike her scent Uh, but she was real tough she was hard Um, and but memories of her sort of influenced where I started with her centre, but the, the, the personalities diverged substantially. Thank you for the question. Joe Carr, hello, Joe. I love the This Is History podcast. Thank you, Joe. I enjoy I enjoy doing it as well. Season three, which just finished, uh, about King John, I think really hit our stride in terms of storytelling. Um, <clears throat> are you planning on matching it to the Plantagenets? That's the book. and going all the way through to Richard II. Well, look, here's the plan at the moment. To be signed off. I'll tell you this because you asked. Season four is coming. Um, as, as I've said that already, we're going to do Henry III, Edward I, Simon de Montfort, Eleanor of Provence, that family, uh, and and roll it into Edward I, because I think that uh, although that will then cover a, a, a longer period of time in one episode than, for example, season three with King John's reign, I think what the, like at the heart of that storytelling in This Is History is um is family dynamics personal relationships and i think that the, that family that dysfunctional family unit um is what what needs to be concentrated on so season 4 is going to be henry the 3rd and edward I. season 5 inshallah but i think this this is on the plan next year we will see we'll definitely see season 4 and season Definitely season four, and, and assuming no disasters, season five I think is going to be part of the same uh, deal. Hello, doggy. Um, so, a, a dog has just walked into the room. Come here, boy. come here, Come here, come here. A wet dog and a stinky dog, actually. Um, sit down, then, boy. Uh, season five, I think, can then be Edward II, Edward II, Gaveston, Isabella of France, the aforementioned. Again, that, you know, at the core, a family unit, a political story, uh, high drama, and then so we're, we're contracting the time period again somewhat. But um, so, so my original plan, actually, my original plan with this history, this is history, was just to do one season and leave it at that. But uh, it's proven remarkably popular, so we're going to we're keeping going. Um, So season four and season five, I'm thinking of doing a mini season on Henry V to accompany the biography, maybe six episodes. Uh, Let me know if you think that would be fun. It would be out of sequence, of course, but it would, I mean, it would have a purpose and it would fit alongside the publication of the book in the autumn, September in the UK, October the first, I believe, in the US for Henry V. Um, So that's kind of the rough plan uh i could then easily see us rolling into edward iii richard ii and 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 beyond actually you've got the whole wars of the roses so uh, assume, but all of this is contingent on people enjoying this is history and the, number, and the audience still feeling like they're having a good time and um yeah so but the plantagenet seemed to be working um i was thinking at one point of of just stopping and doing the templars I know that that's been a, a, a perennially popular subject but I've, I felt it would be, be hard to go back to the Plantagenet so we're gonna keep going Plantagenet um, but what else would you like to see I mean we're doing these bonus episodes at the moment and that's for if you go to thisishistorypod.com or you go to Apple Podcasts and you subscribe to that podcast it's nothing to do It's nothing to do with history etc it's nothing to do with Substack your subscription to this has nothing to do with the podcast let me just emphasize that because i know a couple of people have been confused by that if you're a subscriber to this is history the podcast via sony music you can get what we're doing at the moment which are these bonus episodes where i'm talking to lots of other historians and it's interview based and conversation based uh and this season's bonus episodes are killer so we've got philipa gregory coming who's recorded that already for two episodes um We've had Chris Wickham talking about the medieval economy. We've got uh, Professor Ronald Hutton talking about uh, witches in the Middle Ages. Um, we've got Eleanor Parker talking about medieval Christmas. I mean, it's, it's some super awesome interviews are uh, going down over there. That's for subscribers to that podcast, not to this, to that. If you go to com or go to Apple Podcasts and click try now, try free, whatever it is, you can hear those conversations um but i'm glad every, but anyway the main episodes of the podcast which are totally free uh you can you can listen to everything up to season three so that's currently what 48 uh, episodes are up there now and there are at least 30 to come next year eileen crofts do you ever do talks in schools and colleges about your favorite period in history um you make history come alive so i'm sure you'd inspire future historians i do sometimes do talks in schools and colleges but um the way i try and do things now is keep everything in one block in terms of talks and that block falls around the publication of a book so that's september october time that's when i do talks and stuff so the best thing to do is get in touch with my publishers which are head of zeus in the uk viking penguin in the us uh if you want to book um, talks What's the best Christmas present you've ever received, says Beetle Claire I had some good Christmas presents I've got a, I'm got. very fond of my guitar I've got a Hangstrom Pat Smear guitar, which was a Christmas present the one I've, I get the most use out of is probably uh, Engage Yuppie Mode my Peloton uh, bike I mean that I, two or three years ago I got that and that I've really I'm really in the cult. If you know, if you've been following me for a while, you know this already. I'm really in the cult, super in the cult. Um, so in the cult that the other day I went to Peloton Studios London and did a live class with Leanne Hainsby. I mean, so into the cult that if you read Wolves of Winter and Essex Dogs, you will find uh, heavily disguised Peloton instructor instructors in there. Yeah, I'm into that, and I got that bike for Christmas, so that was uh, sort of life changing fitness wise, actually and um i'm i'm yeah i'm really in it um and also psychologically i mean it is it is therapy actually it's all very nlp neurolinguistic programming based the the style of training on there and so not only has it improved my physical training it's definitely improved my uh, mental uh, processes i would say Hooray, Peloton. Mary says, do you prefer your second fiction book or the first? Do you see them as equals? If I really like a book, I consider it as my friend. Out of all the books that I've read, Wolves of Winter is one of my friends. Oh, thank you, Mary. I'm more than excited about Henry V. Do I prefer the second or first? uh, They're they're different. Uh, The first was like, wow, oh my God, I've actually done this thing. The second was like, oh my God, that was the most hardcore writing experience I've ever survived. Uh, Different different right so that was all the questions from the first call for questions finally after 30 minutes of one answer session and 42 minutes of another we've gotten around to them so thank you everybody for submitting those questions that was fantastic Um, now now for some more (laughs) Um, in the answer post from last week there were a lot. There were even more answers in the comments from subscribers. If you want to ask a question, don't forget, subscribe to this. You can ask it in the comments. Um, subscribe to this Substack. Uh, the buttons are down at the bottom of this post if you want to do that. You can also gift uh, a Substack um, subscription for a year, for six months, I think, maybe. Maybe not six months, but you can gift a Substack uh, subscription. I've put the button on this post if you want to do that. Now's the time of year and all that. Uh, Anyway, let's get on to the final batch of questions before my voice goes. I don't have a bottle of water, which I normally do in here. So I'm just hoping my voice will hold out. That's the dog I'm talking to for anyone who's just listening. Arlene McGregor. In the intro to Powers and Thrones, you say much has been left on the cutting room floor. That's right. That book was nearly 250,000 words long. And I still had to cut a load out of it. Enough for another book? Probably not. I'm curious what you chose to eliminate. It was really a question of story selection, to be honest, Arlene. Um, I had to be incredibly disciplined about which anecdotes and stories I chose because they were to serve the themes that I was trying to elucidate um, in the chapters. Uh, And I've been asked why yours is a new history of the Middle Ages. Well, I think I tackle that in the introduction to Powers and Thrones. I think I say it's new by virtue of just being new. Uh, and it's new also in that it, it tries to lift out of a study of the Middle Ages some themes that seemed to me at the time of writing to be um, relevant to uh, to a modern readership. And those were climate change, pandemic disease, um, technological uh, progress. Um, what were the others? Climate change, pandemic disease. Um, my, global uh, ma- migration. Um can't remember the other one now. I, 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 I think I wrote them down in the introduction. Um, go back to the introduction, and I think I've answered that question in the introduction. Um, it's a massive read. That's *Powers and, Gr- and Thrones*. Says Ali McGregor, and I didn't want it to end. Well, God bless you. Um, when I was writing it, there were moments I didn't want it to end. By the time it did end, I was quite glad that it had ended. Um, that was the lockdown book. You know, uh, that was uh, that was a, a a monster. I'm very proud of that book. Very proud of it. Um, uh, got any book recommendations? Says Eleanor Shakespeare. Goodness me. Well, um, what am I? I'll tell you what I'm. i just tell you what I'm reading at the moment and I'm enjoying. Might it's not it's not for everybody by any means, but Carlo Knausgård's latest, uh, which is called "The Wolves of Eternity." Uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a Knausgård fan. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but I'm I'm into the guy and his new one, uh, which I started and read half of in about two days and have, have since, because I'm in hardcore writing phase, not had a lot of time to read, um, is really good. I mean, but then again, my, there's my... So in addition to that, my I suppose the novel I've enjoyed the most this year uh, is Alice wins In Memoriam, um, which is set in the trenches of the First World War. Uh, wouldn't? Be a book that I'd have. I think I would have chosen, but my agent recommended it to me, and I've seldom loved a book uh, as much. I've got to say, In Memoriam, Alice Alice Wynn. I've already, you know, when I was doing the Waterstones signing evening in London last week, I it's it's on the water. It's me me saying that is on the Waterstones um, Instagram reel, along with all the other writers naming their book of the year. I think that's mine. I think that's mine. It's absolutely superb. Uh, go get it, um, uh, Julie Deeks, your friend of mine says. What books are coming out soon? You're looking forward to the most. Um, do you know what? I, I normally, for my reviewing in the Sunday Times, get a get a list of everything that's coming out for the next six months, and they haven't sent it to me yet, which is weird. Um, so I need to get on top of that. The one I've I've uh, been alerted to this week that I'm really looking forward to and this is a, a history recommendation is Justine Fernhaber Baker's House of Lilies. That's a dynastic history of the Capetians so that's the uh, the French ruling dynasty suppose from Hugh Capet down to where do we end with the Capetians before Philip VI. Um, that I'm really looking forward to. And you know, I I've been hoping for ages someone would do the Capetians in the the style I did the Plantagenets, uh, and I think Justine Fernhober Baker is is amazing. She's really, really, really good. She's based up at St Andrews University in Scotland. She's done the definitive book on the Jacquerie, that's the French peasants' revolt of the mid fourteenth century. She's just a really first rate. Uh, historian and so she's the right person to do that book i think i can't wait to see it uh, it's out in march in the uk um Shane bat uh well just saying something nice thank you shane as always well done dan this format is way cooler than audio only thanks for the shout out i think you found your groove thanks shane um as always do you collect other things besides books says diana not much of a collector But I'll show you something. I've only got one, so it doesn't count as a collection. But here's something that came to mind when I read that question. I play a, a card game called cribbage, or crib as it's known. And I was bought for my 40th birthday a Napoleonic crib board, made a card from bone, in the 19th century, with a compartment holding dominoes. Um... And some commemorative Wars of the Roses stamps. I'd forgotten I'd got those. Uh, but here is a 19th century Napoleonic Prisoner's Cribboard. I'm going to be have to be super gentle with it. How about that? Yeah. Um, where's the compartment for the dominoes now? going to have to be so gentle with this, because this is a sort of museum-grade piece, I suppose. Look, in, someone's written... No, maybe you can't see... Lord Nelson there. Um, I'm, I'm not going to try and dismantle it now to show you the... You can hear the dominoes inside rattling around. So it's a sort of domino set and a, and a crib board. As I say, yeah, carved by a, a prisoner in the 19th century can't tell you much more about its provenance oh here we go here are the dominoes look at that little absolutely utterly exquisite um so you know i don't collect these Make sure I put it back together properly, back in its little case. Uh, I don't collect these, but I do play Crib to a mediocre standard. And um, I guess that's all I've got for you. Somewhere safe. Back in, back in its right place. Okay. Um... Kim Wheeland, I love this format, she says. The most underrated woman of the Plantagenets. Ooh, well, um, what about the daughters? I mean, we talk a lot about the queens, and I've, I've spoken about um, Isabella of France already today. But maybe it's the daughters we need to think more about. So one who came up, actually, in This Is History, the, the, the Sony Music podcast, uh, in season one, I think, or maybe season two, is Matilda, Duchess of Saxony eldest daughter of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. I've recently, I mean, in the Henry V bar I'm doing at the moment, um, I've got a scene where uh, they go, the whole family, well, almost the whole family, goes to King's Lynn, and they send his youngest daughter, Philippa, off to become queen of, uh, well, to marry the king of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. And, yeah, so I, I think the daughters who, who you know, Go off to these other you kings, know, Joanna, Queen of Sicily, in, in another of Henry II, Aquitaine's daughters, um, of that Plantagenet dynasty. Maybe those are the ones uh, who are underrated and very interesting. Oh no, who's this next question from? My oh, papers have gone all over the place. I think this is from Amanda Kemp Inventions from Wars. Work their way into our everyday lives. The jeep, duct tape, medicines and radar. War seems to get the creative juices flowing. Are there inventions from medieval times that came into being from wars in that period? Goodness. I mean, I said great one. Um, Well, I guess we've talked about John Bradmore and, and Bradmore invented a piece of medical equipment, a sort of like a speculum to take the arrowhead out of Henry V's Uh, Face, we invented that because of warfare. Um, I guess, you know, in in Essex, dogs, wolves of winter. We see gunpowder arriving on the battlefield in Europe in the mid in the 1340s. So uh, maybe that's the example. And uh, well, castles as well. Castle building, the relationship between the development of um, of of weaponry, siege weaponry, and the uh, the improvement in castle fortifications uh, is is part of the story of the development of castles in the Middle Ages. So uh, that's maybe the most visual legacy we have in the landscape today of war um, on architecture. Hi Dan, this is Isabel. Are you going to the Leipzig for the, the book fair? Yeah, I am. I guess this would be March 2024. I guess it would. Please, could you let me know the date and exact venue within the fair, as I'm planning to visit the book fair anyway? Okay, so I don't know at the moment. I believe, but I may be wrong. I believe it's March the 21st. Um, I don't know any more than that. I just know I'm going to Leipzig for the book fair on March the 21st. Keep an eye on it. Don't go and act in a way that... um, you won't be able to undo or, or you'll be annoyed with me for if, if you do it and then it turns out that I'm there on the 22nd or whatever. I think I'm there on the 21st, but I don't know where. Um Keep checking. Keep checking. Um Maureen says, oh, well, Maureen's just saying something nice. Very informative and entertaining. Thanks for the new twist. Looking forward to Henry V and the new season of This Is History podcast. Well, thank you very much, Maureen. Uh, Dom Mack says, Hi, Dan. Did you base Father from Essex Dogs on Father Jack from Father Ted? No, I didn't. Uh, I suppose not all of listeners and viewers will have watched Father Ted. Father Ted's an Irish comedy on British television in around the turn of the century. Uh, Wonderful show. Father Jack was an extremely profane uh, priest. No, Father Jack actually didn't come to mind when I was creating Father. Some other people I know did, but I won't mention exactly who they are. Great format, says Catherine, loving the sweater. John Julius Norwich's book about the Popes is fantastic. Well, isn't it just? Um, Chris Ball says, I listen to pod, podcasts, or in this case, not a podcast. Thank you for, for noticing. Contractually, this is not a podcast. While walking or driving, so appreciated the jumper description, which coloured an otherwise wet drive home. Love the question about Romford. He's my favourite character. Um, and Sorry to, to cut down your question, Chris, but you, you want to know, uh, was herbal medicine... Practiced in the Middle Ages, is it therefore unpublished? Possibly largely women's history. Uh, yes, I think you're absolutely right, Chris. I think that um, you know folk medicine, folk remedies practiced domestically. Uh, we can speculate often by women um, are a big part of uh, the Middle Ages um carol just enjoying yourself thank you dan video is fantastic glad to hear it patricia goddard glad also happy deborah also happy well thank you you know for your questions guys katie think thanks for these discussions so for my curiosity because i love oh, more tattoos i love tattoos and the stories behind them will you talk about your ink well, I, th- I hope i've done that to your satisfaction katie suzanne uh, wants to know if i'm coming to amsterdam um look yes at some point i'm i'm coming to the netherlands on book tour but can't give you a date and i don't know when yet uh, but it's it's definitely in the plans you don't need to to, um, to badger the publisher i will i will do that but we we want to do this we're going to do it. but when is the question uh Felice and jessica very happy love love the video great place here and fine so final question we've got there um almost bringing us home to an, exactly an hour um, it's from Jamie Robinson. Jamie says, Nathan, I mean, uh, says that the act legitimising the children of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford did not exclude them, that's the Beaufort children, from the royal line of succession. This is So we're now talking, we're in the 1390s, uh, early 15th century, the Beauforts, uh, from whom Margaret Beaufort, and therefore Henry VII claimed um, uh, dynastic legitimacy at the end of the 15th century, had been <coughs> legitimised John of Gaunt and his third wife, Catherine Swinford, were not married at the time of the children's birth. They subsequently did marry. She became the third Duchess when Constantia died. The Acts of Parliament were passed. An Act of Parliament was passed in 1397 to legitimise the Beaufort children, as they were known, of John and Catherine Swinford. It was later amended to, uh, to make explicit that the Beaufort children were not to inherit the throne that that was not a condition of their legitimacy. They were not candidates for the throne, despite being descended from John of Corn. Um, Do you have a view on this, uh, says uh, Jamie. Uh, Nathan seems to be very pro-Henry the Seventh, anti-Ricardian. And yeah, I, said, I think that's probably fair, and, and Nathan would say the same thing himself. So I don't know how neutral he is. Well, I, I would also say uh, that Nathan is a, a very good historian and a diligent and... and um, conscientious historian. Um, So, uh, you know, you trust the guy, I would say. Look, his, his, as far as I understand it, um, the the act is passed in the Revenge, I think the Revenge Parliament, or maybe the Shrewsbury Parliament, one of the parliaments of 1397, under the end of Richard II's reign, passes this act, legitimizing the Beaufort children. Subsequently in 1407 during the reign of their half-brother Henry IV, Henry Bolingbroke, Gaunt's oldest son, that act is amended uh, to make it clear that the the legitimacy conferred in 1397 does not include a right to inherit the throne. Absolutely true and you can understand exactly why. In 1397, Richard II, at the absolute peak of his, uh, of his majesty, um, just about to embark on what's known as his tyranny, uh, rightly or wrongly does not suspect that um, the Beauforts are going to really be a, a potential threat to his crown. <laughs> his preferred candidates run through the Mortimer, Earls of March, as his successors. He doesn't at that time have any children. Uh, it's it's not particularly likely he's going to have any anytime soon because he's just married the, the uh, seven-year-old daughter of the King of France, Charles VI. Um, nevertheless, so he, so he has his own preferred candidates for the crown. Um, he doesn't seem to think that the Beauforts are, are going to be anywhere near the top of the list of people putting their hand up for the crown once he's gone. Now, by the time you get to 1407, the revolution of 1399 has happened and, and Bolingbroke has deposed uh, Richard II, partly through force of arms, an armed rebellion, an invasion, but it's been made official through Parliament. It's a parliamentary act that's, that's made Henry Bolingbroke the king. And Bolingbroke can claim uh, dynastic rights through. Through his descent from Edward III, of course he can. But really, it's it's been done in Parliament. Um, so by the time you get to fourteen oh seven, and there have been attempts to subvert the uh, the succession again through the with putting Mortimers on the throne, the Epiphany uh, plot. Um, there is much. Concern that if Henry Bolingbroke can can snatch the throne and then legitimize his right to the his right to be king via Parliament, someone else could easily do the same. Uh, it's it's a matter of prudence and caution to limit the number of people who you need to worry about. I don't think it's the case. In fourteen oh seven, Henry the Fourth is is at odds with the Beauforts. But it it is, uh, it's a a point of caution. Um, And it's, there there have been lots of um, moments, there are lots of moments in Henry IV's parliaments where he lays down specifically what the order of succession is, um, particularly with regard to his son, and future Henry V, whether the crown is to pass from Henry V, as it will become Prince Henry, and then to Thomas, and then to John, and then to Humphrey. In the event that Prince Henry doesn't have any any children, and then there's another sort of clarification of that, where actually the crown is to pass to Henry, and then through any children Henry might have, daughters and, or sons, before it, it goes on to Thomas. So there are, there are two two go they have two goes at this. Firstly, saying um, it goes Henry, any Henry's potential male offspring and then on to Thomas and then on to John and then on to Humphrey and then there's a, a, a clarification that goes Henry any offspring then on to Thomas John and Humphrey. okay so I'm just telling you this because I want you to understand that uh, the, the line of succession is a live issue during Henry IV's reign and so it's sort of natural I think in 1407 to say well hold on what about these Beauforts um, no well let's 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 keep them out of it uh, we could do with as few people with a a right to this crown as possible, just for our own sanity. Um, So that's why it's done. And of course it becomes much more important later in the 15th century. And Jamie has one final question. Who's your favorite Peloton instructor? Well, I I mean, I've I've got a few on my roster. I don't mind a ride with Cody Rigsby, Dennis Morton, Alex Toussaint, Tunde. Um, Who else do I jam with on the bike? Sometime, I mean, I had a run with Olivia Romato the, the other morning. Um, I'll I'd, I'd, I'd go for a uh, a boot camp with one of the Jesses, not Jess King, the other one. Super hardcore one. What's her name? Can't remember her surname. All of a sudden, I'm blanking. Um, uh, I I love Adrian, Adrian Williams' 45-minute uh, Thunder boot camp on the tread. Ditto Andy Spear. Mad Rebecca Kennedy. There for that, you know, if you want to do a sort of an abs class for sure. Uh, I hit the yoga mat more than anything else. I'm a Ross Rayburn, a DT Shah. Sometimes I'll do a Dennis. Uh, Dennis got me into yoga, I, I'm more of a Ross guy yoga wise. I like his biomechanics. You know, that list is not exhaustive. As I say, I went to the, the Leanne's live class the other day, and that was fantastic. <sighs> all roads lead back to peloton um but look we've done all the questions i hope you've enjoyed this uh, if you're listening to the end god bless you for sticking with it um we'll be back in january in this format for sure i think it, people have enjoyed it so store it with questions till then um do post any you want in the comments here uh, i'll take a look at those and I, I might just sort of cherry pick any of the best ones for january's mailbag q a um in January, I think I'm going to start doing a monthly quiz on here as well, um, as well as the sort of regular essays. And I think we will have some more uh, interviews. They might be in audio, even video format. They might be in written format, but I think interviews, with other historians, monthly quiz, monthly video Q&A, the usual roster of uh, of sort of essays and, and thinky pieces from me. Anything else you think you'd like to see, let me know uh, for now. My voice is going all croaky, so I'm going to get a drink. All right, I'll see you soon.